Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another installment of Art Blog Radio. My name is Imani Roach, and thank you for tuning in to the TGMR, the Galleries and More Radio, a public art talk radio station broadcasting from the Moore College of Art and Design. You can listen live now by searching the archive, or you can listen live or search the archive of past broadcasts uh, and find out how you can get on air at thegalleriesatmore.org. Um, today, we have, I'm very excited to say, Wit Lopez, Woo! <laughs> um, who is a visual artist, performing artist, um, scholar, um, person about town. I'm really excited to get to talk to them now about their practice. Um, <clears throat> so I first sort of discovered your work uh, because I follow all things Afropunk. And they... Oh, no. <laughs> and, of course, so I, I got um, their coverage of the photo series that you did um, with... Uh, Eva, Eva Woe. Woe. I wasn't trying to pronounce her last name. Okay, with Eva Woe. Um, and was really blown away. Um, and so I, I think I wanted to start with some of your... Well, let's talk about that that piece in particular. Um, can you sort of describe it for us and tell us how it came about? Sure. Uh, so at the time, me and Eva were both artists in residence at 40th Street Air, which is an artist in residency program for West Philadelphia residents. And we were co-working in my studio, and we started talking about things like burlesque and performance. And I had told Eva that I'd always wanted to do it, but knowing how I um, have facial hair and, uh, and what my body looks like, I didn't want to become a spectacle more so than I intended through my own performance. So, you know, it's one thing to want to put on a performance and to feel spectacular, but it's another thing to put on a performance and turn into a spectacle for other people. And that isn't really something that most of us can really control. We can't control how other people perceive us, but yeah. So um, so we talked about it, and Eva said, well, you know, if you ever want to do a photo shoot, I'd be glad to do it. And I was like, well, yeah, let's do it. And that was that was pretty much how it was born, just us sitting there in the studio talking about it. And, uh, and so pretty much I kind of styled myself. Eva picked a location, and we went from there. Fantastic. <clears throat> so in terms of your photo collaborations, was that your first time uh, being sort of in front of the camera, or had you done that kind of work before? Uh, I've been doing photo collaborations for a few years now. Uh, maybe about five years I've been doing that, uh, kind of posing for other people's work or collaborating with other artists to create something ridiculous or silly in front of the camera. Do you see... Uh, the photo collaborations that you do, um, is that a part of your performance work as well? I mean, you talked just now about um, that photo shoot with Eva being an extension of burlesque or being an exploration of burlesque. Um, so how is performing for the sort of photo still camera different than performing, say, in front of an audience? Um, for me, performing in front of a camera is very, very important to my performance practice. 
Uh, I'm disabled and chronically ill, and I have a neurological condition that sometimes makes it very difficult for me to coordinate my movement to be able to walk or stand upright. Um, and so for me, being in front of a camera gets, it allows me to create the illusion of a full performance without actually having to engage in it uh, because I can risk injury if something were to happen and I were actually doing as fantastical performances as I pretend I'm doing in front of a camera. Huh. Have you taken any interest, uh, any further interest after that um, photo shoot in burlesque? Are you, is that something that you're continuing to, to sort of think about? It is something I'm continuing to think about, and it is it has been an interest of mine for years. And uh, part of what I've been considering is how can I engage without being hurt if something does happen? How can I create performances that are inclusive for myself as a disabled person and uh, and get my point across through my performance without anything happening or without triggering my own disabilities and illnesses? Um, you talked just now um, about wanting to make sure the work that you make is inclusive. Um, in reading about the solo show that you had at 40th Street Artist Residence um, earlier this year, right? Yep, it was April. <clears throat> I know that also um, accessibility was a big theme of that show. Um, so what is? can you talk a little bit about what accessibility means to you, and then how, how does that make its way into the, the sort of substance of your work? Uh, so accessibility for me personally is multifold. Uh, so accessibility for me uh, includes mobility things. It includes vision things because I do have vision impairment. It also includes hearing because I do have some hearing loss. It includes food because I have several very severe food allergies. Uh, and so and it, a lot of my work incorporates the ability for touch for people who have vision problems or uh, um, Braille also are included with the display labels. Um, food is included so that people who can't see uh, or who might not be able to hear what's going on can also be included through sense of smell. And everybody's welcome to try things on, which kind of brings them into the exhibition as kind of a performance component of the exhibition uh, and I try to have exhibitions in places that are accessible for people so places with wheelchair ramps or elevators things of that nature and whenever there's food I try to get food that also covers people who have food allergies so I try not to have any nuts at things I try to have options so that it's not just wheat based or corn based or soy-based, so for people who have allergies against those things, or eggs or dairy, they'll also find something else to eat. So it's not just inclusion of, you know, what we think of as inclusion a lot of times, but also the inclusion parts that a lot of us don't think about. Also, I like spaces to be scent-free or low-scent for people who have chemical allergies and uh, can't be in a space with, like, perfume or, you know, cleaning fluids that have a certain smell. Um, yeah, that's, that's part of what I can think about. Also, a lot of my events are free so that people don't have to pay for it because that's a large part of accessibility, too, is the um, financial part. So I try not to charge for anything um, within those things. So, yeah. You mentioned 
briefly just now um, that you invite people to try things on. Can you like what does that mean exactly? How did how did that work? Uh, so some of the stuff I make is clothing or um, it's almost clothing. So it's like, you know, a shawl that's not really a shawl or something that you wouldn't necessarily wear in the street. So, for instance, at one of my exhibitions, I had a kind of like a try-on station with a 13-foot scarf. Mm. So it's like nobody would actually wear a 13-foot scarf outside because of hazards, obviously. <laughs> but, um, but people were welcome to try it on by themselves, try it on with a friend, wrap it around themselves, throw it on the floor. Like, whatever they wanted to do with it, they were welcome to do. Uh, and so I do that a lot of different things. Um, people can try on headpieces. They can try on um, shawls scarves, uh, yeah, a lot of things like that. I like to make things interactive for people to kind of break that fourth wall that exists within a lot of gallery spaces because a lot of us are conditioned and socialized um, from when we're young that we're not allowed to touch art. We're not allowed to engage with art. We have to, like, put distance between ourselves and the art on the wall in a gallery or museum, archive wherever we are where there's art. And there's a lot of artists who don't want their work interacted with in that way because it can damage it. I very openly welcome that. <laughs> I am. Damage. Yeah, I actually have a piece that's on display right now at um, Taller Puerto Riqueño in North Philadelphia. And part of the canvas is actually extremely delicate paper. Mm. And so people are allowed to manipulate the piece itself to tie it together, to do things. But I know that the paper can be damaged <laughs> and, and I don't care. And, uh, and so it gives people the, the space to do something that they've never done before and what to a lot of us feels like breaking the rules. And it's breaking the social norms around how we were conditioned to interact or not interact with art. So I like to give people that space to just break that, to break, to decondition themselves within the space, um, especially around the art that I make. Yeah. Is that what drew you to fiber arts? Because it seems like a lot of the objects that you make are involved, like quilting or weaving or, you know, um, and that feels like such a tactile field to begin with. Um, I guess, so I guess, how did you, how did you get into making those kinds of where did you learn those skills? So both my parents, um, both my parents are visual artists, and they went to school for visual art. That's actually where they met, and uh, I learned fi uh, fiber art from them in various capacities. My mom is a seamstress; she also knits and crochets. My dad actually taught me embroidery when I was in high school, so I learned these things from them, and that was how I got into it. So I've pretty much been making clothes, or I learned how to first make clothes when I was like nine from my mom, like over the summer. She's like, hey, kids want to learn how to, we're like, sure, why not? And, uh, and that's where it came from. So I've been doing it for, well, I'm 31, so a long time. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> great. Um, so uh, you mentioned also Tyre. You have a piece of, of Tyre right now. Um, and that, uh, I was looking at the, the title that you gave it, which, can you tell the people listening the, the title of that piece? <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Um, so the piece that's up at Tayed right now, the title of it is You Tried It Though. <laughs> exactly. So, and, and before you, you talked about this 13 foot scarf, and I feel like there's just a really great sense of humor and like irony um, like, you know, your one piece died from exposure, you know, you've got these great titles, but they're also not just titles, right? They're like 
very real. They're pointing to like very real things in the world. Um, Absolutely. But you're getting at them through humor. Absolutely. So why is humor important for you? Humor is important to me as a person, as artist, because it can be very healing to a lot of people. And I know for me, that's one of the reasons why I use it. Um, not to get too serious, but uh, a lot of times as people of color, as people coming from marginalized spaces, as queer, trans people, a lot of art that gets called, like calls for submissions can sometimes ask for art that comes from a very painful place for us. Mm. They can ask for art that follows maybe a immigrant story that can be very painful for the person who, who had the story. Uh, they ask for art that is about maybe surgery that can be a painful memory that we n might not want to talk about, but you know people do want to submit and get their art out there. And so a lot of times as artists, we pull this pain out of ourselves and we revisit our trauma and reopen wounds that we might not have wanted to reopen just so that we can engage with the art world and engage with it with a part of our identity. And so for me, it's important to kind of subvert that and to engage with art in a way that I don't have to reopen my own wounds and I don't have to remind audience members when they come to see the art of maybe their own trauma that they might see within the art. And then other artists who are there, maybe it might trigger their trauma. So I try to create art that doesn't trigger people's trauma that does, and that won't re-trigger my own trauma when I engage with it, when I look at it again or when I resubmit it to another place. So for me, it's important, but it's also a method of subversion and decolonization of how artists of color, queer and trans artists, disabled artists, and lots of other artists from marginal identities are identified within art spaces. Who do you look to for feedback on your work? Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, oh, goodness. Um, so sometimes I share things with my friends or something that I make is based off of a joke mm -hmm. that I may have said before or that uh, me and my friends <coughs> talked about. So, you know, I'll be sitting there and I'll be like, what if, you know, and they'll, and if someone laughs at it, then I do it. Because for me, it's like, okay, if that person thought it was funny, other people might find it funny too. Or at least people with this person's sense of humor will find it funny. And so that's usually where I, where I start. As for feedback on the actual pieces once they're done, I can't say that I necessarily um, care. I can't. Because a lot of times what happens for a lot of artists, when they embody that feedback, it can curtail where they would go as an artist or the things that they would do, what they would explore. And so I don't want that sense of joy to be cut short because of someone's negative feedback or someone's feedback that was in opposition to what I originally felt about it. Do you... Um are there other artists, so you mentioned your friends, are your friends that you're talking about other artists or are they just friends? The reason I'm asking, I'm very interested in like how artists who are making work that doesn't necessarily, or that break the rules of traditional institutions or that doesn't necessarily fit in traditional institutions, how they sort of cultivate and create community, you know? Because um, I feel like it's really important to know who you're making work for and, but then also to always be in dialogue with those people. Um, and I, yes, yeah, so I'm just like trying to get tips. From oh, yeah, definitely. 
Well, a lot of my friends are also artists, um, but they're also activists too, or they're also scholars within the social sciences. And so for me, it's uh, it's being around people who think similarly to me, either people who are absurd performers also, or who make silly things, or who understand the same position that I hold and the same social con- commentary that I hold about society and my identity or their identities that are similar and overlapping to mine. You mentioned just now uh, social science scholars. You, so you're a grad student currently. Yes. Yes, I am. And what are you studying? <laughs> Not social science. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, my field is arts administration with a minor in museum leadership. And how did that come? Ooh, do you have time? How much time do we have? (laughs) Uh, So I've been working in arts and culture in various capacities in the the greater Philadelphia area since about 2010. Um, It actually started with a paper that I wrote while I was a student at community college in 2010. I had art history class, and I wrote a paper about a Sanufo door that I saw at the Penn Museum. (laughs) Yeah, um, I was pretty excited about it. And I asked my professor, like, what my grade was, because, you know, it was a final paper. So I I reached out to her and asked, and she said, oh, it was really great. It was, like, one of the best papers. Would you want to be my research assistant at the museum where she's currently the director? Oh, wow. And so I was like, oh, my God, yes, I would love to do that. And um, and that's pretty much where it started. And a lot of the collection that I worked with there was actually part of um, a donation, a bequest, actually, from a person who was a, an alum of Bryn Mawr College. And so then from after community college, I transferred to Bryn Mawr. And I worked in special collections at Bryn Mawr with part of the collection that was part of the bequest from the woman who donated to LaSalle. So I ended up doing my undergraduate thesis on that. And um, yeah, her stuff is like all over the world. It's, it's really amazing. But from there, I worked in special collections at Bryn Mawr, special collections at Haverford. I worked at LaSalle University Art Museum, um, the Paul Robeson House. I worked there for a little bit. Um, Currently, I'm working in a museum, and I also volunteer at the Center for Art and Wood. So it's just been a long time, you know, seven years of me being in different places within arts and culture in Philadelphia. And so I was like, well, why am I, you know, why am I thinking about going to grad school for anthropology, which was my undergraduate major, when I'm currently already doing so much work around the city in arts administration? So I was like, well, let me look up arts administration programs that are accessible for me. And the one at Drexel was like perfect. It's a perfect fit. I'm there currently. I love it. My classmates are really amazing. Uh, My professors are stellar. Like they're really amazing people. And I'm really glad to work with all of them. So yeah, that's kind of where I am. And so how does that, the studying that you're doing, does that inform the work that you make, or are those sort of two different compartments in your brain and practice and life? It's kind of two separate compartments a little bit, but outside of school, um, my artistic practice overlaps with how I curate spaces. 
And so currently I'm the artist liaison at 40th Street Air. And I use my studio as kind of a community space for people to come. They can co-work, they can skill share, they can just come eat food, and uh, or they can just come relax, listen to music, work on their own art, just talk to other people. It's all welcome. They can come color in a coloring book, play with Play-Doh, whatever they want to do. Um, it's meant to be a very healing space, a very centering space, a restorative space, which is part of the reason why it overlaps with my artistic practice because a lot of my art and the humor we talked about earlier is meant to be healing to folks. So people come, people just relax. And lately, actually, I've been getting a lot of donations from folks, like donations of all types of things, food donations, art supplies donations. Uh, and earlier, actually, there were couch donations, so that was kind of funny. <laughs> There's a, My studio currently has four couches in it. <laughs> so, yeah, folks are welcome to come relax, do whatever they want. There's been fabric donations, all types of things. I'm really grateful for the ability to have the studio and to build that community. And I'm grateful for all the folks that have donated to the space to make sure that the space is safe for other people. So you mentioned a while back that you're, both your parents are artists. Mm -hmm. um, you studied anthropology in college. So at what, but you were sort of acquiring skills all throughout your childhood from your parents. Um, was art always the goal? Was that something you always knew you wanted to do? Ooh. <laughs> art was not necessarily the goal. At least art not in the way that I do it now. Uh, growing up, I was always, like, the obnoxious performance child. Uh. So, like, I took voice <laughs> lessons. I took dance lessons. I took piano and flute lessons. And I took acting classes. So it's like that was where my, that was where my art was gotcha. as a child. Um, I was on stage since I was, like, two. You know, everybody has that background where they're like, oh, I grew up singing in the church choir since I was three, you know. And so I, I do. I grew up in church. And so that's where my performance kind of started. And, uh, and then once I got into school, I started doing choir and acting. And then I started taking lessons. And I was on stage, a few performances around the city. And it was great. Um, and I did some performances, more professional performances, up until maybe five years ago and then I stopped because it was difficult for me to do the commitment that a lot of stage takes because of my disability and I decided that's when I decided that I had to start making things that I could work with making performances that I could do mm -hmm. on my own so art wasn't necessarily always an end goal but kind of performance was right. like straight out of high school one of the things I told myself, I was like, well, I'm either going to be a German teacher or I'm going to be on Broadway. <laughs> German? Why German? What was that about? I, um, uh, my middle school, I, I had originally applied to do Spanish in middle school, and my backup was French. And they were like, well, all the Spanish and French classes are taken. All that's left is, like, German and Russian. And I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> I'll take this one. So I ended up uh, studying German in middle school and then in high school, and then the first two years of my first time in college when I was a student at Temple, um, I did German. But I had also auditioned for the musical theater program at UArts and did not get in. <laughs> so, so yeah, so then I was like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to be a German teacher. <laughs> so 
you still do music at all? Ooh. <laughs> I have a very uh, awkward relationship with music, um, which also is around some healing and some trauma issues. Uh, I actually just started getting back into music this year after a four-year hiatus from it. Um, so I've been trying to incorporate more music into my performances, live music, things like that. Not necessarily from me, from other musicians, but it does give me the space to eventually get myself back into music the way I would like to. And if you were to be creating the music yourself in the future, what kind of what form do you think that would take? That's a really great question. Um, <laughs> so I'm a classically trained mezzo-soprano. And uh, I know, isn't that ridiculous and terrible? No. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so as a mezzo, one of the things that I love are art songs across languages, you know, German art songs, Italian, English art songs. And one of my favorite composers is Ricky Ian Gordon. And he writes, some of his songs are like just like a couple of sentences, but that are rearranged to be two different, like very amazing things. Uh, and it's just, you know, based off of like a sentence or like a fragment of poetry. And so I like that concept and I would love to do that, but with something more humorous and more ridiculous where you're just like, why is this person singing about that? <laughs> so so um, that's what I would like to do. I would also like to possibly do flute performances more. Um, I haven't done those publicly in years, but I would like to get back into that. Oh, I would love that. I'm going to have to... I think I already follow you on Instagram, and I'm going to have to follow you more closely to see if that happens. <laughs> um, if not, we'll just erase this part of the tape. <laughs> So you're originally from Brooklyn. Yes. But you've been in Philly for how long? I've been here for 13 years. Yeah. What brought you to Philadelphia? Temple. Yeah. Oh, straight out of straight out of high school, I went to Temple University for two years. Um, and then I dropped out, and I, by happenstance, stayed in Philadelphia. So I've pretty much been here my entire adulthood from 18 to now. So you say by happenstance. Uh, can we talk a little bit more about what that means? Okay. Well, because I... <laughs> you stayed. You're still here. You I am. You can't just act like, you know, you had no control over the fact that you are, you've been here for 13 years. That feels like a choice. Um, do you, so what is it about Philadelphia? Like, you know, what does it mean to you to be based here as a creative person? I love it. I love Philadelphia. I think it's a beautiful city. Um, I think the people are great. It's great to be based here as an artist, as opposed to New York City, where I was born and where I, you know, where I grew up. Because New York is like the level of competition between artists and performers is out of this world. I remember when I was in middle school, I auditioned for The Lion King on Broadway, oh, wow. and uh, they were looking for a young Nala. And the line for the line of young girls and children was down the block, around the corner, you know. Oh, <laughs> it was, wow. And we were out there for hours, hours. And here, like, it's easier to perform, it's easier to exhibit. 
you know, and people are pretty lax about it. I mean, I'm not saying it's like super, super lax, but, you know, you go to an audition, there's no line down the block and around the corner. Um, so I love it here. I love it here. It's very welcome. The arts is pretty welcoming here. And there's a lot more kind of informal art spaces. Also, I love the mural arts that are around the city and how they look and how they kind of turn the entire city into one giant canvas. Like, I love that. I think it's, I think it's a pretty performative thing as well as like a visual arts thing. So yeah, I'd rather be here as an artist than in New York City. No shade to my New York friends. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of, you know, you talked about informal spaces and um, all those sort of ways in which it's maybe easier to perform here. Um, what are some of your favorite places to perform in Philadelphia? That's a really good question. Uh, hmm. Well, one place that I performed that I actually enjoyed it because it was so intimate was the Black Oak House, mm. which is um, which is run by Catherine Pancake out in West Philadelphia. Uh, I believe it's across the street from Malcolm X Park, and um, it's it's literally like the house, <laughs> you know. It's a house. Uh, the living room is used as a gallery, but I did a performance there with Lane, um, in. The, I believe it was the summer of this year. And uh, it was very, very Im- intimate, just people sitting on the floor around, people sitting on the couches, people sitting on the stairs, in folding chairs. And I loved it because there wasn't like this separation of the stage or a separation where the lights are, you know, in a black box theater or something. There wasn't that separation. The audience was part of the, ex- um, part of the exhibition and part of the performance along with me. And I love that. Um, that's definitely one of my favorite places to have performed in the city. Um, you mentioned in terms of your work that a lot of what you're doing is like breaking rules about the way that people are typically taught to interact with, with works of art. Um, and also breaking down barriers around sort of accessibility of works of art. Um, do you have similar goals for your arts admin work in the future? Like, what is the, if, if, if I gave you, I don't know, a million dollars in a plot of land, <laughs> or just... Can I have that now? <laughs> like, what is your, what, what kind of museum, or maybe it's not even a museum, I don't know, but you know, but like, what, what is the kind of art space that you want to be involved in, in Honestly, if I had the resources to do so, the kind of space that I would like to be involved in would be a space that was concerned about the artist as a whole person, a space where if people needed things, they could get it, Uh, a a place that possibly had micro-grants available, a space where people could come to co-work and Skillshare, just similar to my current uh, studio situation, a place where people could come and possibly... Uh, swap supplies so if someone needs craypaws and another person needs brown paper maybe they can come meet there there might be some already there or they might be able to swap with each other that sort of thing but also it's a building that is accessible to people with physical disabilities where there's you know there's not a lot of steps that sort of thing uh, where there's possibly an elevator or maybe everything can be on one floor 
um, a space where people can use uh, the stage or the gallery, you know, maybe sign it out, but also like have studio spaces that they can sign out to work in, possibly have lockers where they can store their work so they can come back to use it. So pretty much the space would be very similar to what I do currently with my studio, but it would be on a larger scale because there's a lot of things that artists need that artist grants don't cover uh, or that they don't have access to. Even if they do get an emergency grant, maybe it's used for like a medical bill because they don't have insurance, but now their medical bill's paid, but they still don't have groceries, <laughs> you know? And I would love to have a space where all of that is considered and the artist as a whole person is thought about and sustained. So, I mean, I, th I think we're uh, just about out of time, but I, I did want to do one more plug, since I don't know if we talked about it uh, too thoroughly, for your show up at Tyre. So can you tell me about that show and the piece you have in it and maybe how long it's running? Actually, I think the show just ended. No! <laughs> I know. I'm so Curse sorry. It. I know. I am so, so sorry. Um, but it was part of their uh, call and response uh, sort of series that they're doing. And so for Tayer, they actually, I believe the it will continue. So we were part of the third installation gotcha. of the series, and I think there will be another installation of it. So you're still welcome to go support Tayer Puerto Riqueño in North Philadelphia. I think it's 2600 North 5th Street. By all means, please go support. I do, however, have an exhibition coming up. Uh, with Eva Wo. Oh, great. Um, actually, congratulations to Eva because Eva just was awarded the Transformation Award with oh, Leeway Foundation. Leeway. Yep, Eva's one of the 10 people, so <coughs> many congratulations to them on that. Super proud of her. Uh, so we'll be collaborating on an exhibition that's coming out in March at William Way LGBT Community Center. So it'll also be interactive. There'll be photographs, uh, and it's meant to be very interesting. The title is Dreams of You, uh, Soft Touches, and Fiber Futures. Ooh. So it'll be interesting. <laughs> Where is William Way? Where is that? William Way, I believe, is at 13th and Spruce. Oh, okay. I might be lying. It might be. <laughs> I always get Spruce and Pine mixed up. Gotcha. But, yeah, it's totally in that vicinity. Okay. Great. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Yay. Thank you so much, Lit. <laughs> Thank you. I had a great time. Thank Me you. Me too. Great. Um, well, this has been Art Blog Radio. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to Moore College for having us. Until next time, bye.